Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. The following is a recording that I made back in July 2010 when I was visiting my great uncle's place in Whangarei. He introduced me to his friend Bernie Lewis, who happened to be a very interesting ex-pilot. A Kiwi, Bernie went to Britain to serve in the Royal Air Force just after the war and ended up flying fighter jets and then becoming a test pilot. I always start these interviews off by asking your full name and your rank and your serial number. Charles Bernard Lewis. I was flight lieutenant. The number was 35086891. Something you always remember. It is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, date of birth and place of birth? It is 29th of July 1928. And where and were you born? That was at Tarkika. Right. Mm. Okay. And um, so, obviously, you were younger during the war. Yes. And were you quite interested in the Air Force when the war was going on? Oh, absolutely. I did my first flight with the Chapman McGregor in about 1934. Mad Mac McGregor, he was a squadron leader and flew with the RFC and the RAF in the First World War. I was absolutely fascinated with flying from then on and I watched everything during the war and took a great interest in the flying side. I had two brothers in the war. One was a Pathfinder pilot flying over Germany and the other one was finished his training in Canada and he came back here when the war ended. So he didn't actually see active service. Right. Okay. Uh, so were you still around uh, Nelson area when the war was on? Oh yes. Yes, I was at Nelson College during the war. So you remember the bomber squadron that was based there with the Hudsons and... That's right. I, th- I think it was a general reconnaissance squadron. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, do, you re- do you actually have any specific memories about that? Because I'm actually writing a book on them at the moment, so... Uh, not really, no. I know we, I used to sneak from Nelson College down and look at the rubbish dump down around the Nelson Airport there and looked at old Tiger Moth's wings and wondering how I could pinch them and make a plane out of it all. <laughs> but uh, no, I don't know too much about the squadron there. Right, okay. So at what point did you decide you wanted to join up? Oh, uh, it's in 1950. I've, I've done some flying with an aero club, with the Canterbury Aero Club and then the Nelson Aero Club. During 1948-49, I got my private pilot's license. Then I decided I would join the, or try and join the RNZAF. So I went for the interview, and they said I could either become a navigator or nothing. They just wouldn't change their mind. Well, I had two brothers who were, who were, pilots. And I wasn't going to become a navigator. Anyway, my older brother. He said, the navigator's all right, he said, but I wouldn't like my daughter to marry one. So I, when they turned me down, I took the next boat to England and, and joined up over there at the RAF. That was in 1950. Was it an easy process to get in then, or was it quite competitive? It was remarkably easy. Uh, they, they really grabbed me, but the... Through going overseas, all the way to England, my own expense and so on, they, I was on first step of the ladder already. And it was very easy. I got over there on a, on a Wednesday, I think it was, and they said I could go for an interview at RAF Hornchurch on the Friday. It would be a four-day interview, but I excused myself. I had one relative to see over in Cornwall, so I turned down that uh, interview and did one the following week. There seemed to be a big demand for air crew over there at the time. 
So I went there and uh, they said, well, you obviously can't hang around England too long, so what about coming in straight away? So I said yes, and uh, I joined the RAF a few days later. Right. Okay. And started my training at Cranwell on the 6th of January 1951. What were the basic trainers at that stage? They were Percival Prentices. So they'd got rid of the whole tiger moth sort of They'd got rid of the tiger moth at that stage. Yes, the Prentice was a bit of a cumbersome whole thing. It seemed to work all right. And then we went on to Harvard's and uh, then straight on to jet conversion on old Vampire Ones down in Somerset. Okay. Harry F. Merrifield. Okay. And uh, do you remember your first sort of... Uh your first flight and then your first jet flight and can you take me through those? Yes, I remember my first jet flight. We didn't have uh, jet trainers on vampires, so we had to do the flying in a meteor trainer, which was just a little bit different than the vampire. And I remember on the day I was due to go solo, my instructor, who was a New Zealander, he put me in the in the vampire, saw me strapped in, and then he got some airmen to sit on the tail boom so that the nose came up and he said, that's your landing attitude when you come in. So the airman hopped off, he saw me start up, and away I went. And I, I was pretty lucky really, because normally we used the long runway for our, all our flying up until then, but on this day there was a strong crosswind so they put us on a short runway. And the vampire again was a little bit different. And not only that, we only had a fuel for about 40 minutes flight. They were very uh, fuel hungry, the vampires. And the media for instance, they were very similar, very thirsty. You'd come back in the media and your downwind call just prior to landing was downwind 40-40, which meant you had at least 40 gallons in each tank for each engine. If you were less than that, you were given a priority landing. The vampires was the same. We just had enough time for one circuit extra, and that, that was it. So on this day, instead of using the main runway, we used a little short runway. And I remember coming in and uh, I kept my speed up high, rather like uh, as on the Meteor. And I found I was going to go too far down the runway and I wouldn't stop. So I had just enough fuel to go around again. And I came in and this time I landed at a, at a slower speed. That was my first solo in a jet. It was quite an experience. After that, things improved. Okay. From there, we went to an operational training unit down in Devon at Chivener, near Barnstable. And we did about two months flying there and did our air-to-air uh, -air gunnery. I did two sorties on gunnery. The first one, the guns jammed, and the second one, I think I fired 200 rounds, which was our maximum, and I either got one hit or two hits, and I noticed I was classified as an average air-to-air uh, -air gunner. From then on, we went to Germany and were allocated to a squadron over there, which was up at Bremen or near Bremen at Harry F. Oldenburg. We carried on, we had updated vampires there, the Vampire Fives, and uh, we carried on for quite some time and then we were re-equipped with the American F-86 Sabre. That was an absolutely magnificent aircraft. It is there that I managed to exceed the speed of sound quite a number of times. We'd go up to 40,000 feet, 42,000 feet, up into the stratosphere, 
and you'd go belting along and you'd get up to about point nine, mark point nine two. And then you'd roll over on your back and you'd just dive down vertically at full power. And for a glorious um, four to six seconds, you could exceed the speed of sound before you got into the denser air down below and you slowed down automatically. For an aircraft, which only had a, quite a small engine, 5,200 pounds of thrust, it performed magnificently, the Sabre. It was a wonderful machine. And uh, it was very reliable too. There was only one occasion, I think, where the the aircraft came apart. That was a friend of mine, Peter Underdown. He took off one afternoon on an air test. Uh, this machine came out of the uh, servicing hangar and he took it up for an air test. And he was probably about a thousand, fifteen hundred feet, probably doing somewhere around about three hundred knots, when the aircraft just disintegrated around him. He was strapped in his ejector seat. He didn't uh, use the ejector seat, he didn't use the parachute or anything. He just tumbled down and this was in, this was over Holland. The runway crossed into Holland where we were stationed and uh, he went down backwards through an orchard and it was probably the only slope in Holland everything there is very flat. He went down backwards through these trees down a solid slope and he was picked up by a Dutch policeman who couldn't understand a word of English. He was about the only Dutch policeman who didn't understand English and he was taken off to hospital. Now this happened on a Friday afternoon and on the following Wednesday I had lunch with him in the officer's mess. He had a few bruises and uh, I think he had a broken bone under his uh, eye. An absolutely incredible accident. Mm. Wow. What was the squadron that you were on there? That was 234. Uh, we were, we'd moved from Oldenburg down to Geilenkirchen down in the Ruhr at this stage when this accident happened and we we're on a NATO airfield there with another squadron, three squadron RAF and a Belgian squadron and I'm quite embarrassed to say that during the whole time we were at Geilenkirchen for a year and a half or something I don't think anyone on our squadron ever spoke to the Belgians I don't know why but looking back on it, I was quite embarrassed about it all. <laughs> they, they were not treated as, as being human beings or something. <laughs> it was awfully embarrassing. So what was your main role? What was the reason you were there? On Vampires we were a day fighter ground attack squadron. And uh, we were the same on the Sabres as well. Incidentally, the Sabre, I just can't get off that aircraft, it was a wonderful machine. But after flying the Vampire with manual controls and, and your flight instruments toppled if you exceeded any more than about 55 degrees in climb or 45 degrees in bank or something like that, we got into these Sabres and they were big, they were roomy, they had air conditioning, they had... Um, you could roll and you could loop and none of your flight instruments toppled. We had uh, two, we had three hydraulic systems for the controls and they were so light you could just touch the control and you would roll. It, the rate of roll was, I, I could never reach the maximum limit, it was so fast. We had a radar gun sight. Um, what else did I have? Ejector seats, of course. And uh, it was just a magnificent machine. And what sort of weapons did you carry? We had 6.5 machine guns. 
which was the only downside really. In those days you really wanted to start looking at uh, 20 millimeter cannon at least. So how many squadrons in the RF were equipped with a Sabre? Uh, we had, th we bought 300 Sabres from the Americans. I'm just trying to, we had three squadrons at Oldenburg when I was there, we had two at Geilenkirchen, and there must have been several others with the same sort of number. Uh, probably could have been about ten squadrons and maybe one or two over in England. But it was uh, amazing really, because once people found that they could exceed the speed of sound. We had 16 aircraft on our squadron, about 24 pilots. We had three squadrons at Oldenburg and it was similar as I say all over Germany. And when you dived and exceeded the speed of sound you'd get this bang bang on the ground and it's a bit like duck shooting season over there. They're there are all these 24 pilots of 16 aircraft all wanting to see the speed of sound. It, it was just like the duck shooting season. I think the Germans got a bit fed up with it after a while. And they said, look, we, we lost the war years ago. Will you not keep frightening us all the time with these bangs? And so we had to stop it. But my dad got over there to see me a few years later. And I still managed one for him. Mm. Okay. Um, and you mentioned that the, the squadrons were there as the occupational force, but by that time the Germans must have been pretty friendly, were there, or were there still a few Nazis around? Oh, there were still a few Nazis around. But, uh, there was very little. Uh, we weren't allowed to fraternise during the time that I was there. We had German guards around the airfield, uh, German service, GSOs, German service officers. They sort of looked after the, um, the dog handlers around on the squadron and so on. But we really had uh, RAF guards at the gate and so on. But no fraternisation. There was a little attempt at it, but uh, not much. Did you ever get into Berlin? I never ever got to Berlin. My wife did. She was with British European Airways. She used to fly into Tempelhof and Katow fairly regularly. That Tempelhof, uh, I watched um, uh, The Big Lift, that film recently. Yes. Unbelievable flying. It, it was unbelievable flying. They did a great job. Yeah. Ted Edwards, a local fellow here, he was on the Berlin airlift and he uh, wrote a book recently called Aviators of Northland and he talks on there a bit about this airlift. Very interesting fellow if you'd be interested in him. Yeah, yeah. He was wartime as well. Right, okay. Yeah. From there I went to the Central Flying School and learned to become an instructor. And what were you flying there? Uh, we had uh, Piston Provost. Percival Provosts at the start. I did three months on those during just very basic training. And then we had three months on vampires. They had trainers at the stage, two-seat trainers, and we did three months on those. And, uh, one of the fellows on the course there, well, there, there are two Thailanders on the course. I think there are about 24 of us on the course altogether. And uh, because I think I spoke the best English amongst all these sort of Welshmen and Birmingham people and Liverpudlians and Scots and Irish and so on, because I spoke the best English, I was given these two Thailanders to look after. They were a couple of great little fellows and uh, used to come around home for the odd meal and so on. One morning one of them, Chan, came around one Sunday morning we offered him some coffee and so on, and he started talking. I think he was a bit homesick because he started talking about his homeland of Bangkok and family and so on. And he said, uh, 
mothers-in-law, and he said, in this country, mothers-in-law, they are peculiar blood. And the wife and I looked at him a little bit puzzled, and he saw we were puzzled. And, and suddenly his face came up in a big round grin, and he said, no, he said, not peculiar blood, bloody peculiar. <laughs> so <laughs> they were a great crowd. From there, I went to instructing at the Cambridge University Air Squadron which was at Marshall's Airfield just outside Cambridge in, uh, in the flat area around uh, East Anglia. And I was there for two and a half years. And it was there that I applied to go to the Empire Test Pilot School at Farnborough. And uh, strange to say, I was accepted which astounded me because I wasn't very well up in maths or anything like that and there seemed to be a lot of maths involved. And so I um, was seconded to the Ministry of Supply on special duties to the Empire Test Pilot School in January 1958. We had about 14 different types of aircraft there to fly. Uh, the biggest one was the Canberra. Now that's something which normally I think probably takes about three months to do a conversion course on it. My conversion there, we were given the pilot's notes. One afternoon I went up and I did an hour with, uh, with an instructor. We came down and shut down. A flight engineer climbed in beside me because he knew all the how to start the engines and everything else and all the systems. And uh, I flew for an hour solo with the flight engineer. That was my conversion. About six weeks later, I was asked to go up and assess the aircraft at high mark numbers, which meant going up to. Uh, 40 or 40 plus thousand feet and uh, diving it faster and faster and reporting on how the handling was at various speeds. And the last I was having to dive from uh, oh, about 50,000 feet down to 40,000 feet to get a good dive going and get up to the maximum speed. And they're starting to get a lot of buffeting and vibration and the instrument panel was shuddering and so on. And uh, so I climbed back up one more flight and going a little bit higher this time, up to about 51,000. And my flight engineer was there uh, and I noticed he was reading the pilot's notes as we climbed up to 50, 51,000 feet. And down I went again, there was a lot of shuddering and vibration and everything going on. And again, the instrument panel was double. And uh, I said, right, uh, Gordon, I said, just one more dive after this. Okay, sir, he said, and we climbed back up again, up to about 52,000 this time, I think it was. And he was still reading the pilot's notes. He hadn't said a word, no comment or anything. And I happened to look over, see how far he is into this, uh, these pilot's notes, and I saw he had it open at the back page. It was entitled, Emergencies, Abandoning the Aircraft in Flight. We didn't have ejector seats, he was nearest the doors. <laughs> he knew everything he had to do to get out of this machine. And that, that was the sort of training we got at the Empire Test Pilot School. You were sort of shoved into it and let go and find out for yourself what everything uh, was about. After a, a term, I was struggling a bit because maths demanded calculus and things like that. We didn't have any calculators, we only had slide rules, which I'd never used before. And I was finding it very hard work. At the end of the first term, the year was divided into three terms, like a school term. I was asked uh, 
or they asked for volunteers to go onto helicopters. So I thought, crikey, if I get onto helicopters, they might make things easier on the fixed wing side as well. But no, they didn't. I, they, I was accepted for one of the trainees of that, and at the end of the year, I'd done 34 hours 40 on helicopters, which is less than required for a PPL nowadays. And as well as that, I did the fixed wing side as well, and I passed out as a test pilot on aeroplanes and helicopters. So I did a quick fortnight's course, I think it was, with the Royal Navy just to freshen up on a different type of helicopter. And then I was put into the testing regime at Boscombe Down, the Royal, uh, at the aircraft and what is the aeroplane and armament experimental establishment at Boscombe Down in Wiltshire. And that's, uh, that's where I really got on to testing, uh, mainly as a helicopter test pilot there. But it was interesting, we were getting on to rotor governing, uh, new turbine engine helicopters and uh, gunships and things like that, and autopilots as well. So it was a completely new innovations for helicopters and it was a very interesting time to be there. So what sort of helicopters were you actually doing this testing on? The main one at the time was the Wessex, the Westland Wessex, which was a big order for the Navy. And it was, a, at the time, a very good aircraft. Uh, some, one of my friends was doing the Belvedere, which is a big twin-engine, uh, uh, twin-rotor machine. It was used, they only had about two squadrons of Belvedere's. It was used by the RAF out in Borneo and uh, Aden. In Borneo it was known as the Flying Longhouse. As that literally is what it was, a great big long thing with a rotor at each end. But I was mainly the uh, the Wessex and a little bit on the Saunders or a Scout, Skeeter and other Westland products, the Westland uh, Whirlwind and Dragonfly. And at that stage, um you mentioned Borneo, and, and there would have been the Malaya conflict around. That's right. Were, were you interested in going out there, or? Uh, that came up later. I did some tropical trials out in Aden with the Saunders Row Skeeter. That was a little two-seat, uh, underpowered machine which I took out there. I say it was underpowered. I did two ceiling climbs out there. On the first day, I got up to about seven thousand. 400 feet and the next day up to about 7,600 feet. Even First World War aircraft could climb higher than that. <laughs> so the, the Skeeter wasn't very successful. Uh, 18 months later I took a Wessex over to Canada to do winterization and the rotor blade icing trials over there. And that a little bit of uh, uh, helicopter gunship work. I did some of that with rockets and uh, and machine guns. I did a course over in Paris on the SS-11, a French wire-guided missile to be fired from a helicopter. And then I was uh, posted away to Central Flying School again to do a helicopter instructor's course. And it was from there that I was asked if I would go back and tutor at the Empire Test Pilot School on helicopters. But about the same time I also had an offer from Rolls-Royce to join them as a test pilot. And that offered far more opportunities. And so I joined Rolls-Royce. And that took me up to Malaya and Aden when there were troubles around there. 
get up and see how they're operating with mainly with the whirlwind at that stage which was a, a turbine powered whirlwind also this turbine powered whirlwind it became a civil version as well the whirlwind series 3 and I flew one of those out to Abadan in Iran for Alan Bristow and Bristow Helicopters and I converted his pilots out there onto the aircraft. Okay. So can you tell me about the establishment of um, Rolls-Royce that you were working in? Under the, how many test pilots did they have on, on Yes, we, we had... Initially, I, I was wrong in saying Rolls-Royce asked me initially, it was Bristol Sidley. Bristol Sidley Engine at Filton in Bristol asked me to join them. But it was the following year when they had a big election over in England and Howard Wilson was talking about coming into power and he brought down his uh, shadow air minister down to Bristol and I remember in the Bristol Evening News that night Jenkins, the shadow air minister, saying your jobs are safe with us. I think about 10 days later they had the election Labour and Harold Wilson got in and immediately we had a 17% reduction in staff at Bristol we lost three test pilots. I was very lucky, I was the last one in, but they kept me on, fortunately. But we lost three test pilots out of eight, which was a big reduction. And Harold Wilson then went on to try and cancel the, um, the Concorde, which got up the noses of the French quite a bit, and they and there were so many penalty clauses that he didn't dare, so that carried on. There was a Mark II Harrier jump jet, that was cancelled. There was a short takeoff and landing transport, that was cancelled. These were all uh, engines used, uh, made by Bristol Sedley. And there was something else which was cancelled. And immediately we had all these orders cancelled. And Wilson said, there are too many engine companies, we're only going to have one. And with a name like Rolls-Royce against you, guess who was sucking the hind tit as it were. And so we became Rolls-Royce. Okay, so you just got absorbed in. We just got absorbed in, yes. And so, so once you were absorbed in, how many um, sort of test pilots did Rolls Royce have? Would, would, would they have absorbed everybody, all the other? Oh, we had uh, up at Nottingham, and the, which was the real Rolls Royce place at Hucknall, they had one, two, they had three test pilots up there. And they main, they kept all their test pilots after the Labour came in. We went down to one chief test pilot, then we had a test pilot, chief test pilot for helicopters and uh, fixed wing. And uh, one other fixed wing test pilot and myself, the other helicopter test pilot. Uh, what's that? Four? That's all we had. We went down from eight. Okay. But we... We were very busy with intensive flying trials there on a number of aircraft, particularly the Saunders Row Scout. And two pilots couldn't do it because it meant flying virtually on the helicopters about 18 hours a day. It was too much. So we got the fixed wing pilots. 
uh, they, they were sent away to do a little short course on a small little helicopter. I think they did about 20 hours or something like that. I think it was 20 hours, not 30. And then they came back and we had this the scout helicopter and it didn't have dual controls. So I was given the job of converting these <coughs> fixed-wing pilots with 20 hours helicopter experience onto helicopters. And so I'd sit in the aircraft with them, I'd show them how to take off and land, and then I'd get out, we'd change seats, and I'd talk them through taking off and landing, and uh, then we'd change over again and I'd teach them how to move around over the airfield and so on, and then we'd change and I'd over again, and I'd talk them into all that, and sometimes I'd talk very quickly. <laughs> but uh, it, it was good fun, but we did a lot of flying there. And similarly, uh, occasionally some fixed-wing work would come up, which they were too busy doing, like relighting on the uh, on the jet provost, which we made engines for, or on the Mackie, which we made the same engine for. And these sort of things, they would ask us to help them out when they had a lot of flying. And likewise, we had a communication fleet there too, of Hawker Siddeley 125s and Dove aircraft. And we were also developing the Viper engine for the 125, so there's a lot of test flying going on on the 125s as well. And also the with the German Air Force, the Fiat G91, we made the engines for that. And they were having trouble there. Well, I had flown Sabres, which is a very similar sort of aircraft to that, so I was sent over to Germany to fly with the German Air Force and uh, did the flying on that. So we were interchanged pretty well from one helicopters to fixed wing, fixed wing to helicopters. There's no problem at all. But one thing working for an engine company rather than an aeroplane company. In an aeroplane company you really only flew about two or three different types of the model that you were making. With Rolls-Royce we made engines of all sorts of aircraft and uh, all over the world. So I had this wonderful opportunity of flying around with the German Air Force and the the Austrian Air Force and the Iraqi Air Force. I thought they were a bloody shower, <laughs> that lot. <laughs> I was glad to get out of it. And of course, on the Concorde engine, we had the Concorde engine <coughs> fitted under a Vulcan bomber. So I did a fair amount of flying on the Vulcan as well. I guess that um, when you first decided to jo try and join the RNZF way back then, um, you'd never have envisaged all the other air forces you'd end up flying in and you never flew in the RNZF. I had no idea at all. Going to that Empire Test Pilot School was the greatest thing that ever happened. It was a hell of a course. But all looking back on it, it is a wonderful course. There weren't that many New Zealanders who went through it, were there? No, I think there were ten altogether. And a Probably 11 if you included uh, Arthur Clouston, who was the commandant there. And he later became a commandant when I was at Boscombe Down too. Now he was a local lad from down Golden Bay, Collingwood Way. He, he used to go out looking for my grandfather who was a surveyor out Collingwood Way and he'd occasionally get cut off by floods and people would mount searches for him and they'd go out and they'd find him wandering around carrying on his surveying, quite happy. And uh, he remembered my grandfather very well. So it was good that I handed up there. Yeah, yeah. Um, Harvey Sweetman was one that went through, wasn't he? he? I think Harvey was the second person to go through. I'm just trying to think of 
he was either the first or the second. And there was another fellow, Starkey. They, they were the first one and two. And then there was a fellow who I met later on when I was with Civil Aviation in Wellington. Uh, just to get his name offhand. There was Ron Gallatly from Nelson. There was Artie Ashworth from Wanganui. He was on the same squadron as my brother during the war on Pathfinders. Then I think there was uh, Ozzy. That was his nickname, Ozzy. Uh, he went through, then I went through. Steve Moore, who's now an Air Commodore at the RNZAF, he was the next one. On, no, after me there was um, a fellow from North Shore. Oh, heck, I know his name so well. Getting old, that's the trouble. He joined uh, Government Aircraft Factory, Stu Pearce. He joined the Government Aircraft Factory in Melbourne, Geelong, as their chief test pilot, and he was killed in uh, in an aircraft accident there a year or so later. Then Steve Moore was the last person to go through. No, there was a chap, Henderson, Jim Henderson. I think he went through after me too. That's still quite a, um, an elite sort of thing to be in, one of ten really, isn't it? Oh yes, yes. No, I, I was so lucky to get onto that course. It, it, it was wonderful. And so when did your test flying with Rolls-Royce come to an end? Uh, soon after, oh, about a year after Rolls-Royce went bankrupt, if you remember. This was in 1970, I think it was. I was... Uh, I used to go up to Hucknall at Rolls-Royce, help them out quite a lot, because they had a Wessex up there. It was a, the original Wessex, and it had a different engine to the ones that we were doing. Ours was a twin-engine version, they had a single-engine version. And they didn't, they, they got this aircraft on in terms of flying, and they didn't really have anyone who knew anything about helicopters. I think they did an outfield landing somewhere, not very successfully. And this was before the takeover of Rolls-Royce to Bristol, Sydney, and they rang my boss, could I go up there and help them out? So I did that on several occasions. And again, when the RB211 engine was being used, was being developed, this was the engine that caused all the problems for them. I used to go up there and fly their VC-10, which had the two port engines, I think it was, removed, and one RB-211 engine uh, fitted to replace them. So I used to go up there and fly that. I only flew it about five times, because uh, that was when we went bankrupt and. Probably partly because of Harold Wilson, <laughs> it caused all the problems. Mm. Well, was it ever a sort of a nerve-wracking thing the first time you got into an aircraft with a new engine? Were you worried that something might go wrong? Uh, no, by the... The Concorde one, we, we had the four main engines used on the Vulcan. Uh, we kept them going all the time. It, it was a tremendous performer, that aircraft, this Vulcan bomber. I remember frequently going from 30,000 feet up to 50,000 feet in a chase aircraft. We used to fly around it in a chase aircraft to make sure no panels were falling off or anything silly was happening. 
and when they decided to go from 30 to 50,000 feet, they'd open all five throttles, and the power was nearly doubled with the big Concorde engine on there, and it'd just virtually disappear out of sight, and you'd have to call them up, hey, come on, stop messing about, and uh, that, was, that was it. Similarly, when I was flying it, when we used all five engines, I'd wait for the call. <laughs> Hey, come on back. So we, we always had uh, four spare engines. We had a five-engine Vulcan, and four of them were really spare. <laughs> but we flew that aircraft from 150 knots, from about 1,000 feet up to 50,000 feet, and it was a very, very well-proven engine by the time the Concorde ever flew. And so when André Turcotte, the French pilot, or Brian Trubshaw, the British test pilot, flew that aircraft, all they had to really worry about was the aircraft itself. They had no worries about the engine, because it was thoroughly tested. About three years, we had a testing for about three years before Concorde ever flew. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. It was. It was. It was great stuff. The jet stream, which you've seen out here, that was another aircraft which we got at the last. But that, that had a French Astor Zoo engine in it, which Rolls-Royce were sort of monitoring, I think, for Turbomega, who made the Astor Zoo. That was a very interesting little machine. And I had a few problems with that, but, uh, but I found it very interesting. Okay. And then once you were finished with the testing of Rolls-Royce engines, did you come back to New Zealand then? Or? Yes. Yes, I came back here and uh, fiddled around for a little while and eventually uh, joined Thames Aerial. No. I went to Aerial Surveys in Nelson. They had a supercharged Cessna 206. And we're going up to about 30,000 feet doing aerial surveys around the country in nice clear weather. And I called in to Thames one day, landed there, because they apparently owned aerial surveys, not that I knew it at the time. And uh, they offered me a permanent job as a helicopter ag pilot for them. That was a new outlook, so I, I flew for them for about seven years, mainly up around the Northland area, and then I joined Civil Aviation as a helicopter uh, inspector. Did about four years there, then I was promoted up to Superintendent of Flight Operations in Auckland, and there I met up with uh, Faye Richwhite, who were getting an absolute magnificent helicopter out here, a French machine, a Dauphin. And it was just an absolute magnificent machine. And we ended up flying the Duke of Edinburgh around down the South Island, down to Stewart Island, up Fiordland to Franz Joseph, Ocarito Lagoon, and uh, overnighted at Franz Joseph. So that, that was very interesting. Mm. Took him down to Stewart Island to see the uh, Kakapo, oh, okay. then the white herons at Ocarito. Oh, right. Brilliant. Mm. And the over to the America's Cup was coming up, and uh, Michael said, sell the Dauphin, because he was the mainstay in the America's Cup in 92. He said, I'm going to be away for a couple of years over in San Diego. Sell the helicopter, so I did, I sold it over to the original makers, who had a base in Sydney, I flew across to Sydney, in it one day, 
I think established about five world records on the way over there because it, it was a fast machine. It was very fast, retractable undercarriage, had radar, had autopilot. It, it was marvellous. So I sold that and then a fellow down in Auckland provided a helicopter for Michael over in San Diego. So I went over and flew a sort of top cover for the America's Cup team there in 92. So I was also involved with the Fijian Army Air Wing. They had a Dauphin. And so I was going up there every six months or so and uh, doing their flying training and, and checking as well. Well, then I thought I was getting near time to retire, but I carried on with uh, doing work for civil aviation and my own company, which I set up as a consultant. And they kept me busy right up until just a few years ago. Mm -hmm. I took early retirement when I was 75. Hmm. So, um, do you still fly today, though, or, or do you get up? No, the last flying I did was last year. Ohakia got me to go down to one of their dining-in nights for three squadron. And uh, after that they offered me a flight around a little Bell 47. So I did a little bit of hands-on there. Great. Last year also I did... Uh, I was getting on to Michael Fay about parachuting because he is keen on something like that, strange things. And I said I'd done a bit with some friends down in Taupo as I was doing an audit for them. And they said, well, if you do this audit, you're going to have to uh, do our parachute school as well. I said, well, to do that, I need to start at the top and work my way down. So I got a free parachute jump out from 12,000 feet. And it was marvellous, absolutely marvellous. So I was telling Michael, out on Great Mercury Island, he said, well, it's my 60th birthday in a little while. He said, what about you parachuting down onto the island? Because he has big parties out there for his 40th and 50th and 60th. So I did that. Brilliant. I was 80 years old then. <laughs> wow. Well, you've had an amazing career. As I say, it wasn't a job. It was a hobby. Wonderful hobby. Yeah. Mm. Oh, fantastic. Well, thank you very much for uh, My pleasure. doing this. It's wonderful. My pleasure. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.